0: justice facts reveals the dark drama behind real life criminal cases truth is stranger than fiction that's what this true crime podcast is all about just the facts Texas narcotics agents called him Mr. Z. Talk among informants was that Mr. Z was the man, the big shot, the kingpin of methamphetamine operations in North and East Texas. Mr. Z provided the formula, know-how, and most importantly, muscle for meth labs across a wide swath of the state in the early 1980s. A true-life version of Walt in Breaking Bad but with extreme paranoia and an arsenal of stolen military weapons. Mr. Z's nickname came from the Datsun 280Z sports car that he drove back in 1982. The 280Z sleek European styling took America by storm in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Nissan produced the three-door, two-seat coupe 280Z. His real name was Richard Larry Rusk. A 41 year old meth kingpin from Athens in East Texas. But in the meth underworld, Mr. Z was only known as the name of his car. Law enforcement only knew him as the elusive Mr. Z. I crossed his path when I arrived in Dallas from New York in 1981. Meth was an epidemic. Our TV crew rode along on raids with the DEA and state narcotics officers to remote farmhouses in rural Texas where meth cooks would temporarily set up to hide their labs. Sometimes the location was given away when neighbors downwind sniffed the foul odor that was a byproduct of cooking meth. The houses and makeshift labs were not the glittery chemical wonderlands called super labs and breaking bad. It was pure filth. I was always shocked by it. And the impurities in math marked habitual users with ugly sores covered with scabs. I first learned about the hunt for Mr. Z when agents raided a storage unit near downtown Dallas. It held one of Mr. Z's many arsenals. Inside, agents found cases of hand grenades, As a former congressional investigator for the Joint Committee on Defense Production, I was taken aback by what I saw. Mr. Z stockpiled air-to-ground missiles used on Huey helicopter gunships in Vietnam, and he stored the Army's M-72 Laws rocket launchers that I had been trained to fire at Fort Jackson. It was a disposable Vietnam-era shoulder-fired light anti-tank weapon that could penetrate armor as thick as seven inches. It suddenly dawned on everyone that we had ventured inside a powder keg. We slowly backed out. Agents called Dallas Fire Rescue and Bomb Disposal Units, fearful that an explosion could destroy a wide swath of area across a busy Interstate 30 on the northeast side of Dallas. Taking down Mr. Z could set off a war. Officers from the DEA, ATF, Texas Department of Public Safety Narcotics, and the Dallas Area Organized Crime Task Force surprised Mr. Z at 2.30 a.m. on Friday, March 20th, 1982, at a campground at Lake Dallas located north of the city. As the meth kingpin stepped out of a travel trailer, they confronted him with a state arrest warrant for manufacturing amphetamines and federal warrants for unlawful flight in possession and distribution of narcotics. Mr. Z drew a nine-millimeter semi-automatic pistol and opened fire. Three officers returned fire. Mr. Z died from a bullet wound to the chest. Shotgun pellets peppered one arm. He clutched a grenade in one hand and held another grenade in his pocket. The element of surprise kept Mr. Z from pulling the pin. I'm Robert Riggs, back with former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston, with another story from our careers on the Justice Facts podcast, where we like to say truth is stranger than fiction. And now Bill's going to talk about a case of his from 1987. It's a case of murder, mayhem, and methamphetamines. And that's the title given
1: by the, of all things, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, which handled a large part of the South in those days, <clears throat> on appeal, and they called it that because that's really what the factual background showed. It was a group of meth cooks, and as you as you mentioned, it was different in, in those days. What What is now imported from Mexico by the cartel was almost exclusively made in the United States in clandestine laboratories, a pound here, a pound there, or 50 pounds here and 50 pounds there. Methamphetamine, uh doesn't take a degree in chemistry, although I prosecuted Ph.D. chemists for it, for making uh, more sophisticated labs. But it uh, takes some precursor chemicals, three of them, uh, including uh, phenylacetic acid, which, is, which has quite a smell to it, which gives it away. And uh, it took 12 to 24 hours to cook it, depending on the method. And they could, you know, somebody with a third-grade education and a lot of nerve could make $100,000 a week doing it, and that's why they did it. And the case that the Fifth Circuit termed the case involving murder, mayhem, and methamphetamine involved the infamous Shackelford brothers from West Texas. The Shackelford brothers and a couple of other uh, multi-time convicted felons decided they would, instead of buying and wholesaling methamphetamine, they would just make it. One of the brothers had studied chemistry at Texas A&M, where Robert, you and I went, (laughs) yeah. And he, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take that chemistry course when I was there. <laughs> now, you know, uh, about this same time, I prosecuted a guy named Dr. Ed Crawford, who was a full professor at Texas A&M, yes. Ph.D., yeah. who was the uh, sort of the godfather of a certain style of cooking. Mm-hmm. We sent him mm-hmm. to federal prison. But this character, Eric Shackelford. Yeah.
0: Who had, didn't live up to the Aggie
1: Honor Code. Did not. <laughs> didn't, well, didn't take it seriously. He, he wanted to make money. And so they set up labs. Um, In the old-fashioned method, which, again, it takes a great deal of glassware and precursor chemicals, some heating mantles or propane burners, and uh, they finally uh, had a bit of a troop with them. They had some women that they had uh, recruited that either they got hooked on meth or already had the
0: addiction. Same on Mr. Z. Mm -hmm. There's a whole group of women around him. All all of meth addicts. Yes, and I was amazed –
1: uh, in so many cases where these scruffy-looking uh, guys, dirty, nasty guys, had the most beautiful women in yes. in their wake,
0: following along, and it was all about the meth, of course. And I saw that on every big-time meth dealer and cook that I ever covered. I could not figure it out. Uh, you know, they look like, you know, Victoria's Secret models. Right. It's just, wow. right? But they, they all had addictions. They did. And meth... In my
1: experience prosecuting hundreds and hundreds of meth dealers and manufacturers, uh, meth was one of the hardest drugs to get off of. It still is. Meth is now smoked more than it's injected. But in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, meth was mostly injected, mainlined, Mm -hmm. and uh, incredibly addictive because of that and because of the surging high that it gave. And the Shockford brothers, once they set up, their labs they finally found an old rendering plant near Hamilton Texas now for those urban dwellers yeah. a rendering plant is where the remains of cattle are processed and yes. so they kind of it's kind of a glue factory and so this old rendering plant in sort of the northern part of the hill country of Texas Hamilton Texas was a, was spooky enough anyway because it, there's cow bones everywhere and yeah. old machines and rusty parts and anyway these These guys set up a meth lab there. They were making very large quantities of meth. They could make uh, 10, 15, 20 pounds at a time. So every day or two, they could make that much. And what
0: was that worth on the street back
1: then? So that's worth $100 a gram and worth, so grams of sweet and low package. And so that would be if it was already cut down with Mm -hmm. a dilutant. And so that would be worth um, $10,000 a pound or maybe twenty thousand dollars a pound, depending mm-hmm. on how pure it was, and that's the how they were operating. It looked like at first it was just a large meth case that was substantial enough for DEA and the Texas Department of Public Safety and Narcotics Service to make it a priority, and they did, as did local law enforcement. So it was a big drug case, big enough they wanted to take it federally, which I was happy to take when I was prosecuting. That was part of the area I covered. Uh, and they decided uh, they would, once they started following them and got the position of getting a search warrant and, and began arresting these people, they decided to look around the rendering plant uh, just to see if they would missed anything. And an old deputy uh, from Comanche, Texas, popped the top of a barrel and something didn't look right. There was white powder all in it, but it mm-hmm. wasn't a drug. It smelled foul and strange. Well, it was a barrel full of lime with a woman's body inside, encased in the lime. That was the first indication because no one knew there was a woman missing that had been with him. Yes, And it was a, it was a, a woman out of Houston who had run with them, And as Wendell Shackleford, the older brother, said, started using a little too much product, using a little too much product, and he felt like uh, that wasn't good for business, so he one evening just decided to take an electric cord and strangle her. And he did, and he somewhat cleverly and, of course, um, horribly, stuffed her in a barrel and filled it full of lime so that it would hide the smell and, and sort of leach the moisture out of her body. And he did that, but they found it. So now they're like, what in the world? They didn't have any explanation for how she got there, who she was. And that was strange enough. And we began rounding up as many of them as we could and getting federal warrants all over the place. After a day or two, there was word that there was someone that was an acquaintance of theirs, perhaps a cohort, named Jack Wiltrout from Comanche, Texas. This is sort of... Oh, 30, 40 miles away. And uh, it was a mystery. No one knew where he had gone, if he had found trouble or just moved off. But once we charged all these jokers with a serious federal crime, now they're looking at real time, the younger brother wanted to talk. Well, we weren't that interested in talking to him, but he said he really wants to talk. So he told his lawyer, come up to my office, had a Texas ranger, big Fred Cummings of Lampasas, Texas, great ranger, mm-hmm. came up. And the guy sat in my, in my office handcuffed with his lawyer there and said he has something to tell you. And we said, fine. And he talked a little bit about the meth. And we said, no, Eric, if we could, the ranger said, where's Jack? I mentioned Jack Wiltrout earlier. Where's Jack? And he had this funny look on his face. And he said, he isn't. And we said, well, now. Eric, the ranger in his deep voice said, "Now, Eric, everybody's got to be somewhere. So where's Jack?" And he repeated, "He isn't. He's not. He's not." So, after a few minutes, it's not funny, but I'm laughing because of how ridiculous it was. Uh, he said, um, "Did you did you guys were you out there? Did you see a little little pile of ashes, uh, maybe in front of one of the sheds?" And I don't know. Remember, or just act like Mm -hmm. we did, and he said, "Well, that's where he is, but there's nothing." He said, "You'll find nothing, nothing." We're like, "What does that mean?" So we had him taken back to jail and gathered up, and several agents and I went out there, and sure enough, in front of a sort of a lean-to shed near where their lab was, but not right there, there was a pile of ashes, two or three feet across and maybe six inches high, and. It was just ashes. It didn't look like anything. And the ranger had fortunately brought a, a sifter. So it's a wooden box-looking thing, two-by-fours, maybe about three feet square with a screen, a metal screen, sort of like chicken wire but smaller in there. And he said, if you'll shovel it in, Bill, I'll hold the screen. So we, I shoveled it in, and it was just ashes so small that it was powder. But after a little bit, before we decided to give up on the idea, there was a little piece of metal. Well, it was a zipper. It was a it was a zip man's lucky you'd find on a man's pair of mm-hmm. jeans. And well, okay, so another scoop and sift and nothing. And then in a moment, a little broken piece of glass. Well, could that be from eyeglasses or is that just a piece of window pane? And then a little. Riders were finishing up a little metal object that slipped through the screen, but it was a little sort of clump. uh, It looked like it was metal and survived the fire. So all of that goes off to forensics, and uh, forensic people of different types got involved, and and even the local eye doctor. And he said, yes, uh, Jack Wiltrout wore glasses, and this is his prescription. And another expert said, well, that's a zipper off of a Wrangler brand pants, and uh, we found out that Will Trout usually wore Wranglers. And then the final piece, uh, Vincent DeMaio, who was a pretty well-known medical examiner in San Antonio. Famous. Famous. They did some work on the tooth, and, and dental, uh, as they call it, forensic odontology is a, is a field that's had a lot of criticism. You have to be very careful about that field regarding bite marks, but regarding crowns and dental pieces, it's usually pretty reliable. And Dr. DeMaio said, uh, after obtaining Will Trout's dental records and looking over, he said, that is the cap of his tooth. And that's actually how the identification was made.
0: And so all we have left of Jack from uh, these meth dealers is the cap of a tooth, a little bit of glasses, and a um, zipper. A zipper. And a zipper. So we're going to pause for a message. We're going to pick it back up. And I want to talk to you when we come back about Wendell Shackelford. Okay, so when we left off, you have found a piece of metal zipper, little piece of glasses, and a, a dental cap. They've all been helped you identify um, Jack. But at the the principal in all of this, the drug dealing, was Wendell Shackelford. Now, didn't he become one of the nation's top fifteen fugitives?
1: He did. These murders were so uh, I guess substantial in terms of the drug spree that, and we found that the drug spree had stretched all the way from Houston to way out in West Texas near the town of Big Spring. I mean, mm-hmm. probably a 500 mile stretch. Sure. And the killings were so terrible, and the and the effort was so big that when Everyone else was caught but Wendell. Um, We really wanted Wendell. The Marshal Service had a program that they had developed a few years earlier called the Nation's Top 15 Fugitive Program, much like the FBI's Top 10. And a case you and I were involved with that we've talked about quite a bit on the uh, True Crime Reporter podcast is Kenneth McDuff. He was also a Nation's Top 15 Fugitive. But it's, it's reserved for some pretty bad characters. And Wendell was one. And, by the way, I talked about the pieces left. Well, you know, I don't know, I don't know a lot about incinerating human yes. beings or any of that process, but I just knew what I saw, which was there was nothing left. Well, it turned out that when Wendell uh, was after he'd killed Jack, and we'll talk about that in a minute, how calculated that was, uh, and wanted to get rid of the evidence, they used one of their meth cooking burners, a big propane ring burner, they put a barrel up on a heavy grate, heavy metal grate, and they put the barrel there first, put the ring burner underneath it, stuffed Jack into the barrel and put and put wood around him and constantly fed wood into the fire. And they used a propane tank and, and just started cooking him. And after about 12 or so hours, uh, I'm sure it went pretty well for him, but not, Quite well enough, and so they ran out of propane and went and bought at the local propane business another big tank of propane and started it up again. Yeah, and these aren't your little propanes that's your
0: barbecue grill, (laughs) right? Big,
1: big, and it's made made to cook meth for long periods of time and very hot. And so we found the course found the receipt for that, but they cooked him for a total of twenty four hours, feeding wood into it so that it just cooked it down. It cooked the bones to powder. There was literally not a bone left. and that's, But that's how cold-blooded they were, and one of the reasons that Wendell became a nation's
0: top 15 fugitive and was hunted all over the place. Well, this is a, a pattern I saw in covering meth back in those days. You know, today everybody is familiar from Netflix and all the, the violence and brutality of the Mexican cartels in Colombia, but this preceded all of that. And they would kill you in a heartbeat. And they would set, I saw cases where they, they, the girlfriend of the meth dealer, she had a meth deal, and another rival gang would turn her and set him up. But was it the, I always wondered, was it the meth and the paranoia from them using the meth that fed all this, like Dr. Z in his arsenal? Or was there just something about the personality, the people that are drawn to this? That's a great question. You know, you have people, people that
1: uh, are willing to not just deal drugs to support a habit, which is which is bad, but that happens sometimes to support their habit. But people who are willing to start at the top of the so-called food chain, make it in large quantities, and as you say, with all sorts of adulterants in it, horrible stuff in it, and not care at all, not care who's getting it, how many people are getting hooked, what it's doing to their bodies and their systems and and the death it causes and destruction to families it causes. Um, So someone that would do that is probably a sociopath anyway, Mm -hmm. certainly. And so it's not much of a step fired up and with the catalyst of being on meth, so to speak, that, uh, yeah, you get someone that's willing to kill. So many meth cases, uh, and it's still true today with the cartel, they're the most well-armed Yes. People. They make crack dealers look like uh, used car salesmen. They are the most well armed and, as you said, paranoid people. The violence involved, and I tell you other stories and will at some point, but the violence in, that meth dealers and manufacturers showed really was the American cartel. In other words, yes, today it's the Mexican and, and yeah. Honduran and uh, Central American cartels, and they are brutal and they are. Cold-blooded in every respect, but the pattern was started with the
0: American meth dealers. Well, and one of the things I saw is that um, you know I'm from East Texas, but I'd gone off. I was an investigator in Congress, worked for a member of Congress, but all the the good old boys, guys I'd gone to high school with, they started doing a growing marijuana, and that evolved into meth because of money, big money, but. The violence they brought to the game and the, the fear of being ripped off and eliminating competition, boy, it, it was a brutal. I mean, they would, you know, I mean, I knew of a case where they just tied the guys up and burned them alive in a car. Right. So, Bill, I, I want to share a personal story about meth. You know, I'm from Paris, Texas, and my mom and dad came there after World War II, and they were trying to start a business. And we, I'm a kid, we lived in a rental house. And it was hardworking families on that street. But I don't know what happened, but a number of the boys on that street went to the penitentiary. And I was the, the runt on the street. And f- thankfully, we moved. We, you know, they started, we got, they bought a house, rural, outside on the edge of town, got out of there. But I was the runt, and so I was the brunt of trouble. And the ringleader uh, would bring the gang over and harass me, but I had a little sandbox I would play in and toys, and they'd come over and turn it over. And I finally I was sick of it. And Dad had all of his stuff from the Pacific and the war in the garage, his stuff he'd brought back. You know, those guys even brought weapons and stuff back. But he had what was called the trenching tool. The trenching tool is the small shovel that they carried in their packs to dig foxholes. And I hid the trenching tool out back. And the next time they came, I took a swing and split the skull open of the ringleader. And, you know, my mom's horrified, called ambulance and everything else. And so I never had any more trouble from the ringleader. None. Fast forward many years later, we always knew each other. I spoke to each other. You know, weren't buddies, but we knew each other. So I'm I'm back visiting in Paris. That's when I'm the congressional investigator in Congress. And one of my friends who had been a college football player, big guy, real big guy, said, hey, let's let's go drink a beer. And I said, this is a dry county. You can't get it. Oh, I know a place we can get a beer. So we go to this what I call honky-tonk dive. And it's packed. It's just packed. And we're drinking a beer, just kind of catching up. And suddenly, at the end of the table, is my old nemesis. And he's huge. And he's got this flaming red shoulder-length hair. And he is one of the math kingpins. And he's feared by everybody. And we look up. There he stands. And he says, "Uh, Robert Riggs, you remember when you split my head open with that shovel? to the top of his lungs, and everything goes silent in that bar, everything, music off and everything. And the football player I'm with grabs my leg under the table and says, what have you done? What did you do? And everybody thinks there's about to be a killing. And I said, I'm not going to say his name, respect for his family, is still around. But I said, uh, yeah, and I hope I don't have to do it again here tonight. And then people literally hit the floor. They thought the shooting is starting. And he smiles and starts laughing, and Man, i have where have you been? Let me buy you a beer. So respect. He respected you. And then okay. he sat down uh, and uh, told me, you know, because I'd been a student leader at Texas A&M and stuff and had been in the papers and everything, and he told me how proud he was of me. And he said, I've I ruined my life. I've ruined the life for my family. And just, that was it. And not long after that, his girlfriend, who was absolutely model gorgeous, set him up for a hit. And he walked out of a place, and they got him with a shotgun in the face. That's how brutal that world was and mean. And I know in your own case, it kinda, that was your start as a prosecutor. It was. Uh, there was no U.S. Attorney's Office for the central part of Texas
1: between Austin and Dallas was no man's land. And the prosecutors from Austin might come up from time to time. Mm -hmm. There were just a handful of them back then. But meth, its manufacture and distribution at the wholesale level was huge in Central Texas, between Dallas and, uh, and Austin. And very early on, before I even got put in that job as federal prosecutor for Central Texas, I was involved in a case where I met the godmother of methamphetamine in the southwestern United States. The godmother. Godmother. Her name was Edna Kate Christenberry, known as Mama Kate. She had figured out, after murdering her husband in Georgia and traveling west, she had figured out how to make meth. It's no secret. You can look look it up on the Internet now, but back then it was a bit of a trick. You need sodium acetate. I'm not giving any secrets away acetic anhydride, and phenylacetic acid, none of which you can get anymore. Uh, they can get them in Mexico, but we can't get them here. You cook it a certain way. You mix in some methylamine. Uh, you might use the catalyst of mercuric chloride and cook it a certain way, a certain temperature, a certain pressure, and you'll come up with methamphetamine. Well, you uh, and again, the, the recipe is everywhere now, but the problem is you can't get the chemicals, thank goodness. And it's and they're all and all the precursors are now illegal too. And this is why I have to show my ID for Sudafed. Right. Yeah. And that and that was the little shortcut small batch method they did yep. later because they couldn't get the precursor chemicals. But Edna Kate Christenberry had figured out how to cook it. Don't know how she learned. And she became when I say the godmother, she taught most of the great meth cooks mm-hmm. of Texas and the Southwest. She... Started a lab uh, in, I think, Cleburne, Texas, south of Fort Worth, Mm -hmm. um, Mansfield, Texas area. That became an early uh, embryo point, if I may say, uh, for meth cooking. And it spread from there to West Texas, South Texas, East Texas. Uh, And it doesn't take teaching just two or three people how to cook it, and they'll teach two or three, and there you go. And that's what happened. Her first lab in Waco, near east of Waco, was a huge methamphetamine lab. Each flask had used giant glass flasks, and each one was a 22,000 milliliter, milliliter flask. And she had separate uh, burners for each one. And she had all the glassware you can imagine, thousands and thousands. It looked like a high school uh, chemistry project gone wild. But she started it there, and she led to any number of cases that I ultimately started prosecuting from uh, goofballs and narrative wells and weirdos and meth freaks who decided, why work when I can make meth? And they did. And it started uh, in, in the United States for a long time. It was made domestically in that method. It was cooked, and then it was dried into powder, and it was bagged up, and it was uh, watered down with dilutants. Uh, they might use a vitamin B or something powder to make it uh, more valuable, and that went on for a long time. After that, so quickly, in a minute, I can tell you how we got to where we are now. Then uh, when the Mexican gangs realized, wow, cocaine's great, we'll continue to transport Mm -hmm. that, but we can make a myth? Okay. So they started making it in the San Joaquin Valley of California. There's some really amazing songs. Bruce Springsteen wrote a couple cool songs about it, telling the story of it. Um, and that was made often when the hydrotic acid method, which is a slightly different method, produced cyanide gas and just killed a lot of people because of the gas coming off of it. And then the Mexican, when the cartels, the Sinaloa cartel was partly behind that. Yes. When they figured out that they, if they make it, they'll have their, in essence, their own like cocaine production, but they don't have to do anything but just do it in a lab. And the cartels started making it in Mexico to a pharmaceutical grade. In other words, t- to a purity that, again, it's smoked now here. It's, it's rarely injected. It's yes. so powerful, smoking gives you the high. Yes, And it's just as addictive. But it was just a follow the money, follow the economics of it deal when the Mexican gangs realized US, idiots in the U.S. are making it. And now they're have a, the Americans are having trouble getting their precursor chemicals, which they were. Uh, Much of it came out of Oklahoma and elsewhere, and they clamped down on it. And after they couldn't get it and the Mexicans started making it, they took over the business. Now, uh, I guess would be 98% of all meth in the United States comes from Mexico. It's smuggled in the same cocaine and marijuana routes, mostly cocaine routes these days. Uh, And the profit's tremendous because the precursor chemicals are not that expensive. They get them, they buy them from pharmacies. I mean, they buy them from pharmaceutical providers in Mexico because everyone's paid off along the way. Uh the State Judicial, the federal police, whoever they need to pay off, they pay off. And it's cooked in laboratories, not in in sheds or mm-hmm. back buildings. It's cooked in laboratories. And that's the meth problem we have now is is that the Mexicans saw how the some ignorant, you know, American yeah. cook could make it in large batches and they figured they could do better than the Mexican cartels did and now they run it.
0: Well, you know, I talked in the beginning of this about Mr. Z and I was going out drug raids on meth, and they were always in the remote rural areas, some old, it got almost abandoned farmhouse. They wanted out so because there was such a stench, such an odor that came off of it. But I remember, oh, my God, just nasty. If you saw all this stuff, how it was made, the nastiness, you know. I used to think, you know, remember Nancy Drew, Reagan had the, uh, just say no, her drug war, and I was like, right. no, just just show them the pictures of how this stuff is made. It reminded me, you know, in the military, how they would show you the graphic pictures of syphilis and gonorrhea. Right. Well, I don't know. Maybe we should have taken that approach, because I would look at it like, oh. And then with the other thing I knew, the street dealers were cutting it with, All kinds they of didn't stuff. care what they, they didn't cut it with.
1: They, they could use... Uh, Chopped up sheet rock. I mean, yeah. it did not matter. Yeah. And they did. Inject.
0: They did. They did. So And yeah. a baby powder right. and just other, anything sure. handy. Because you could double the weight of it and sell up yeah.
1: for the same price. Yeah. But that's right. No, they were the most violent, nastiest. And um, and now, unfortunately, because it is made to a pharmaceutical grade, it is so powerful that the addictive quality of it is uh, is just terrible again without injecting it. Many people have problems with needles. Well, they solved that problem. They, they sure made it did. so strong you could smoke it. Nothing was too no too horrific, and as you said, it, some of these guys started with marijuana. Uh, you know, and I don't mean innocently at all, yeah. but I mean certainly less consequence to mm-hmm. the body and so forth. Uh, but when the meth dealers started, uh, it's it's sort of like the Colombians used to actually produce and transship marijuana, mm-hmm. and they realized the bulk of that was just not. Uh, the economies of scale didn't work. Right. So they would make, so they started doing cocaine. And Columbia became the headquarters of all cocaine because marijuana wasn't uh, profitable enough. Similarly, meth, what you can make in a short period
0: of time compared to any other drug, uh, was just unbelievable. So I want to talk about a connection here to our case that's out there on True Crime Reporter. uh, Shackelford, is captured by U.S. Marshal Inspector Mike Carnavali. Carnavali, you know, a few years later plays a big role with uh, U.S. Marshal Inspector Dan Stoltz in in getting McDuff. What was there about Carnavali? I mean, he seemed to be, you know, he was in Panama, behind the Rangers when they were taking down Noriega. He and Stoltz seemed to be at the center of every mean fugitive in the country. Mike Carnavali, who passed away of
1: cancer several years ago, was one of the most quietly fearless humans mm-hmm. I ever met. He was tiny. Yes, he was, uh, Mike probably was 5'6 or 5'7, might have weighed 130, 140. Uh, he, Mike was married to a woman from Thailand, and Mike spoke English and Thai and Spanish. And he used it all in his career. Mike, I don't know if you know this, Mike um, not only was involved in the capture of Manuel Noriega, the dictator of Panama, which a case which I had mm-hmm. a tangential uh, relationship to, in a, in a meth case, believe it or not. But Mike um, Mike was involved in the sweep through Mexico after DEA agent Kiki Camarena was tortured and murdered uh, by Pablo Acosta's Acosta's gang. I think that's right. Uh, At any rate, uh, he was uh, given the keys to Mexico by the head of the Mexican Judicial Police because they trusted Mike. Mike uh, had no fear, of course, but had a great sense of duty and patriotism. He loved our country, and he loved law enforcement yes. in our country. He loved to be uh, an advocate for making something right, and so yes, he helped capture uh, Wendell Shackelford in Houston, Texas. Wendell had an AK-47, and it was in the middle of cooking some more meth, and Mike, where Mike caught him, uh, and and they jumped on him, had quite a fight. Apparently, little Mike and big old Wendell Shackelford and Mike prevailed, but. What a what a guy! As you said, with Danny Stoltz, the other marshal we know, their careers are
0: unbelievable, and they just just hit the top of history all the way through. And he was a a thin, wiry guy, but he was like a terrier. But he also had a persona, like oh boy, he did there is something in this package. He did the Mex- Mexican uh Carl Quinteto. That was who? Okay,
1: Carl Quintero, was was behind the Kiki Camarena mm-hmm. abduction case. And so, yes, Mike was, he had a fearlessness that that's so hard to measure. You think of a guy that's a little like that. Well, is he, is he great with a firearm? I'm sure Mike was a great shot. Is he good at some martial art? I don't know, but he had a, a penumbral aura <laughs> that, that emitted from him and everybody respected him or feared him. Mm-hmm. The crooks were terrified of him.
0: Well, you know, there's a famous story. You mentioned they were down the Noriega invasion, he and Stoltz planted themselves at the airport because they figured, hey, every fugitive from America that we've got a warrant for, they're going to be trying to get out of here, and we're going to nab them. But along the way, some official from another uh, country that was uh, favorable to the drug dealers smarts off to Carnevale, big time smarts off to him. And the story is Carnavali grabbed him and took him to the basement of the airport Tied him to a chair, oh my. and put a paper bag over his head, and said, "Sit there until you start respecting America, and I might just be in your country next." Wow! And then later, the you know the the State Department's calling, like, "Well, we understand you snatched this official and all, that. you know, Stolz and on they didn't care. We're teaching the guy a lesson, and you know, he's out there with the narco traffickers, right? Yeah,
1: it's." Um very rare humans that have that sort of fearlessness and and that gravitas Mm -hmm. as they would say today but uh quite a guy but did a great favor for us in this
0: case because this was a killer on the loose and mike caught him and so talking about meth uh you know i did a meth series lord around you know mr z in which i interviewed women that had been meth addicts and stuff and uh you know, they talked about how it just took over their life. But one woman would tell me that, oh, you know, I could, I could vacuum and do house chores nonstop for 48 hours straight. And I was like, who wants to do that? How's that a good feeling? But one of the things I, I really remember back when we were on the trail of the serial killer Kenneth McDuff in Waco, you know, a number of his victims, they were easy prey, they were sex workers, and they were on the street. They were all meth addicts. And I remember talking to their mothers, and the mothers would give me pictures of them from when they were in high school, and they were beautiful. And now you saw the mugshots from their arrest and the ravages of meth. Oh, my God. The hair missing, the, the teeth rotted out. Um,
1: myth. Uh, there's, there are still public service announcements about meth. And I, I think that's because they're just so true. That the deterioration of the body and the mind, frankly, on meth happens pretty quickly. But you don't find that many really old, as we'd call them, meth freaks. Yes. Because it kills you. There are a few. But it turns a beautiful 20-year-old or a handsome 20-year-old into a very old man or woman in two or three years.
0: So what is up happening with Shackelford? Because he appeals
1: his case. He appealed his case. He complained about a number of things, the way the searches were done and our conduct of the trial and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So from federal district courts, they take if they take appeal, they go to about a dozen appellate courts throughout the United States set up to take federal appeals. And Wendell was very unhappy with his trial, and mostly because the federal judge gave him a life sentence, and that's real. And federal life sentences mean you're never coming out. Mm-hmm. And the Fifth Circuit um, wanted to remind Mr. Shackelford that everything was done properly, and that his tale of murder, mayhem, and methamphetamine would not well end for him, and it
0: didn't. It's rare I ever saw at a circuit court write that in an appeal. I mean, he must have really uh, made the judge angry, or they were like, you got to be kidding me bringing this case up here.
1: I've never seen an opinion, uh, an appellate opinion that gave title to the case, and they truly did, because... uh, It was just that. It was murder. The type of murder was mayhem
0: for certain, Mm -hmm. and methamphetamine was scattered and sprinkled throughout the whole case. Don't you wonder how many other little piles of ashes these guys left behind that we never knew about? I don't think they told us anything they didn't have to tell us because they figured
1: we would ultimately trail across that or it would help him in this regard. Wendell was out on his own for a long time without the brother who told, so who knows what he did.
0: Well, That's another episode of Justice Facts where we like to say truth is stranger than fiction and we give you just the facts. I'm Robert Riggs with Bill Johnston. Thank you. Justice Facts is co hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.